Whether you want to start a faith-based business or an online ministry, you've come to the right place. This is the Teresa Blaze Show with your host, Teresa Blaze, where she's bringing her over 20 years of consulting experience to the mic. Now, here's Teresa. I'm Teresa Blaze, and welcome to the Teresa Blaze Show. Today, I have got a special bonus interview, and I'm telling you guys, this is an interview I've been looking forward to doing for a very long time. Uh, and to help me actually uh, facilitate this is the pro- well, the producer of the Teresa Blaze Show, and he so happens to be my husband, Mr. Michael Blaze. Hello. Good to have you. And the special guest that we have today is Mr. Dan Miller. If you do not know who he is, you should. Uh, he is the host of the 48 Days Radio Podcast. He is the author of 48 Days to the Work You Love and No More Mondays and other many other books. Uh, too many to list here. And he's an all-around good guy. He's a, he's a speaker. I have a privilege to call him friend. Dan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I like being identified as just an all-around good guy. I, I want my grandkids to feel like that and everybody I know. So thank you for that. We've been waiting for the right time and the right show to bring you on, and this seemed to be it. Yeah, when was it, babe? Uh, 2016 that we talked, that we met in person, Dan? That out After your talk at Podcast Movement in Chicago? <laughs> I, that sounds about right. How, how, how many years have flown by since that one? Yeah. So, well, Dan, let's, um, let's for, for the audience that doesn't know you outside of the introduction that I gave, what can the audience take away from kind of your vast experiences of, uh, regarding like who you are in, in a few, uh, few words? What we have to offer always comes out of our own life experience whether that's academically or just experience itself. So I was born into a poor farming family, but my dad pastored a little tiny Mennonite church. And that's a real formative thing in my life. So I grew up with a very legalistic theological overview um, telling us essentially that we're just here to hopefully not screw up real bad. And then we go to heaven and things will be okay. So this is just kind of a testing ground, but in Looking at that, evaluating, studying myself as I grew older, I realized, wow, the life we have here is really all we know. Let's make the most of it. Let's really move into joy and victory right here. I've had this wonderful privilege of working with people now for 30 years and coaching through those inevitable transitions and trying to figure out what should our lives look like, not just on Sunday, but on Monday morning? What does it mean to do something that honors how God has gifted us. So I've been writing, coaching, and speaking in that space for quite a long period of time and considered an honor to do so. And all the times that you've talked about uh, your family, because I, I actually went back and I listened to a previous 48 Days episode where you actually laid out your uh, some of the things that you learned from some of your experiences. What I've always been curious of, with your family being as legalistic as they were and with your, your shift into what you do now, how did they respond to that? Did they support you in it or did you have to overcome that adversity as well? Oh, yeah, that, that was a difficult time. There was not support for that. I pushed the limits, pushed the boundaries, pushed the guidelines at every point, Teresa. 
that was not easy. I was a challenge for my parents and I moved away totally from even their church when I was 16 years old. That's pretty tough when you're the pastor's son. I mean, how embarrassing is that when your own son stops coming to church? So that was very tough. Now, I want to add very quickly, time is a wonderful, wonderful healer. And in as much as I did things that they were very disappointed in and thought endangered my eternal soul, you know, over time, golly, they changed and grew and softened. They loved the woman I married. They loved our kids. They loved what I did, even though they didn't understand totally how you can do the kind of things I do. I mean, my dad was a farmer. So if you milk the cows and sell the milk, that's understandable. Plant soybeans, sell the soybeans. But to get paid for just thinking and talking and writing, he never really understood that. But even to his dying day, I mean, he lived quite a long time after mom passed, but he had my books in his nursing home. He'd see me on TV and show me to his friends and show my books with pride. So we had a wonderful relationship in later years. But in those early years, no, that was very, very tough. Maybe someone's listening and they're going, I've got this itch to do this thing, but my family isn't buying it. How do I get across? How do I get past that? It can be so challenging when it involves personal relationships. But at some point, we've got to follow our heart and our understanding. And you know, we learn new things, we experience new things. And as we do that, we ought to grow. I mean, one of the things that scares me more than anything is sameness, just being stagnant. I mean, even in our faith. That's something that ought to be vibrant and grow, not just something that locks us in to fences from which there's no escape. So moving out of that to me was a very freeing experience and frankly continues to be so. I never was one who wanted to look for you know the ultimate truth, even if that was different from my mother and father, and then just lock into that and just park there and stay there. This has been a continuing process of exploration for me, not only from the time I was 16, I mean, from the time I was six years old, I questioned things. I questioned things even at that early age. Why would this be true? Why would God want us to do this? And so I was always not just being rebellious, but just questioning the simple framework that I was given for my faith. What you're saying actually fits along with the other podcasts that I do, the Unresolved Life podcast, where it's answering some of life's most difficult questions. In general, if we don't question our faith, if we don't challenge what's being told us and find out for ourselves, then we're doing ourselves and the people around us a disservice. You got to be true to yourself. I mean, when you, I found this true myself. I have some good friends from college and stuff, and you know, they watched me go through business after business after business. And, you know, I remember, you know, them multiple times. Well, Mike, you need to go find a job. Mike, you need to go find a job. And, you know, after our daughter was born and I, and we had to do all the, the care for our special needs kid, it's like, I can't find it. I, I can't work a job. I have to do something unique to, to fill our needs because there's just, it's just not there. That's right. Absolutely. We ought to have that freedom. 
Life is not a cookie cutter process. God makes us all as unique as the snowflakes, we're told. And as such, we have a lot of opportunity to find what makes our life most fulfilling and meaningful. Let me ask you this. You've got a lot of really neat projects that I know you're working on now and experiences that you've had. I mean, as I recall, uh, you've done the whole, you've worked with uh, cars, you've done a lot of really neat things. In your entrepreneurial journey, what would you say was the most successful, and I'm not counting it as in monetary, although it could be that, what would you say has been the most successful venture and why? Well, it, it is without question what I'm doing now and what I've had the privilege of doing for the last 25 years. It's not just a linear process, but for me, I did a lot of things that I just experimented with and enjoyed. I really did. I've never done work that I didn't enjoy. And I never felt like, oh, this isn't it. You know, I have this angst that I need to really move to something. I just simply enjoyed the opportunities that showed up. When I was in my early 40s, and Joanna and I, my wife and I started teaching a Sunday school class on career life transitions, we had no, absolutely zero expectation that that would turn into anything related to career or income generation. But the needs were so expansive. We had people that showed up from other churches and other states. And I realized this is an amazing need that people are trying to figure this out. How has God gifted me and, and what should that look like in my work? So we moved into that space in providing materials for people, doing workshops and seminars, doing individual coaching, having online groups where they could be a part of that. So that's been extremely fulfilling. I came into it almost by accident. It's not a process of me just sitting down and making a business decision. My business kind of evolved in spite of me, and I've always been catching up. But in doing that, it's been extremely rewarding to work with people, see the lights come on, help them really get clarity in what they're moving toward and why, and then seeing the benefits in their own lives of that. So it's certainly been this last 25 years of my life. But I I should add in that I went through a, a real disaster when I was in my late 40s. It took a long time to unwind that to get back to zero. And I was 52 years old when I got back to a zero net worth. I was thrilled the day I realized I was worth nothing financially, obviously, and not theoretically, not worth nothing or never that. But when I got back to zero financially, I was thrilled. I was 52 years old. So what people know me for at this point has all happened since then. So I'm really patient with people when they show up here 27 years old and they're frustrated. I'm like, my goodness, enjoy the journey. You you aren't even old enough to ask the right questions yet. Just continue living out the opportunities that come your way. You'll get more and more clarity so you can go into the most fulfilling seasons of your life. I remember uh, when I really first encountered this, this whole finding work that you love, that you enjoy. My mom and I were in a grocery store and I was mm, late teenager around then. And, you know, she looked at me and and went, you will go to college and you will do this and you will do that. Now, granted, there was a lot more around that, not for this podcast consumption, but um, my internal reaction was why? 
why should I? I don't know that that's what I want to do. And then I ended up moving out, met Mike, and we we actually and he actually introduced me to uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. And and so that was like, oh crap! You mean I don't have to go to college? I don't have to do all this stuff, you know? And 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 then it was it was he gave me a set of Gensu knives or knockoff Gensu knives and went, I want you to sell these on eBay. I I didn't know anything about marketing. All I knew was a little bit of creative writing, and and he just he it was like he was like I don't care, sell them on eBay. And and the funny thing was, Dan, that was my first exposure to. I wrote something, and every single one of them sold. Power of the written word. <laughs> Power of the written word, but it was also from that point on. I was just bitten by the entrepreneur. I'm like, I don't want to work a job. Not if you can do that. Have you had experiences similar, or have you seen experiences similar to uh, what I just laid out? And if so. How can someone, let's say they, they just know they want to do something, but they don't know what to do. How can they take that step forward? I, I have had experiences. I've, I've never had a real job. I've always just seen opportunities around every bush and just acted on those to turn them into financial income and fulfillment of doing something that I enjoy. So even when I was six years old, I went door to door and we lived out in the country. So door to door, you know, meant like half a mile in between a house, but it's selling Christmas cards door to door. Wow. I had sick. I won some prizes and things. And then I went on to, you know, washing the neighbor's cars and removing all the tar from them and waxing them and doing delivery and just one thing led to another. And then I started you know, flipping cars where I'd buy them, fix them up and sell them. And I was doing things like that, you know, before I ever got out of high school. So when I came up through those years, there was no motivation for me to go look for a regular job. Now, ironically, I did go to college because it was a politically correct way to leave the farm, to leave the farm. That's why I went. It wasn't to pursue a career path. And what I pursued as a means of study was psychology, totally having to do with my own desire for personal understanding. Not that I would establish myself in a particular position. Certainly didn't want to be a traditional therapist. I'm way too impatient for that. But I studied psychology for the personal understanding. But all the way through, we never borrowed money. All the way through was doing things to generate money for our family, our growing family, and just continued to do that ever since. You know, then went back four years later and got my master's degree in clinical psychology. Again, just continued study. And then years later, did my doctoral work in religion and society. Never having to do with getting a piece of paper so I could get a job because all during those times before and since, I've just done things that are right in front of me, opportunities that seem to appear that are easy to put legs on and generate income, but at the same time have time flexibility and freedom I mean, our kids never knew a dad who had to go to work and wasn't available on Thursday afternoon if it was a pretty day to go to, go to the park or the zoo. I was always available. It's never been about how much money can I make. It's about how can I be a faithful provider for my family? Yes, but how can we have the kind of life that we're going to look back on 20 years from now, that our kids are going to look back on 20 years from now and say, wow, we had the richest life I can possibly imagine. And frankly, my kids do. 
I mean, they're grown now. You can talk to them. They know we had a, a pretty ideal life. Even as the finances changed up and down, they don't recall us having difficult times because we always had one, we had game nights, family nights at our house that attracted kids from the neighborhood in. And we traveled together. We had simple experiences together that created memories. Dan, one of the things that I respect about you is that you're, I've always, always thought of you as the eternal optimist. <laughs> um, how, how is it? I mean, and I know you've been through some stuff. I remember the story about the gym when you talked about the, when you, you know, when you went bankrupt and lost the gym and everything was going to crap around you. How did you, how did you maintain your optimism? I never lost my belief that things were going to get better. I just never did. I, I'm one of those proverbial glasses half full kind of guys, but I just maintain that belief. Never lost sight of that during that period of time. And you're talking about when you know, I sold a business at public auction and woke up the next morning and realized I was about $430,000 in debt. And incidentally, in that, I did not declare bankruptcy. Being raised Mennonite, I thought, I can't do that. I gave my word. It doesn't matter what the contracts say or what the law allows me to do. I can't walk away from that. I promised I gave my word. Now, being the optimist that I am, I thought, yeah, take me a couple of years. I'll knock that debt out and go on my way. Well, with the IRS, things don't unravel that quickly. With penalties and interest, it got very complicated. It actually took me 12 years, 12 years. But I never regretted my decision to keep my word in that. It wasn't just the IRS. Of course, that's not bankruptable, but all the other vendors that I owed would have been, would have been able to wipe that out. And I didn't do that. But I just, I always have that belief that I can figure this out. When I realized the shape I was in, the mess I was in, I didn't point any fingers. I mean, the bank that I had open lines of credit with changed ownership three times in two years. That was what precipitated that. And I could have pointed fingers, you know, those dirty rascals. Hey, I got up the next morning, looked at the guy in the mirror and said, okay, you got us into this. How are you going to get us out of that? And so I just started walking that out. During that period of time, I mean, my wife was discouraged. She was dependent on me for provision and we were struggling. Believe me, we were struggling. I'd cut out pictures out of magazines and say, babe, this is the kind of house we're going to live in. And I know she had trouble believing that, but I just kept doing that. This is the kind of car we're going to drive. This is the kind of house we're going to live in. And you know what? <laughs> Those images that I kept putting up are so accurately descriptive of what we have today. It's uncanny. People would think I had vision into the future. I just was that clear about what I knew we were moving toward. So I never focus on what's behind. You know, when I, when I talk to people and they're discouraged, resentful, resentful, frustrated, depressed, guilty, angry, I know they're looking at the past. They're looking at what's already happened. As soon as we can help them get a clear vision of what they're moving to, we get an explosion of boldness, confidence, enthusiasm, and those negative emotions start to diminish immediately. So I just, I just took responsibility for that. I've always been a big one, a personal responsibility, and boy, that helps me come up with solutions. So I just started walking that out, even when things looked pretty grim and we had creditors calling every five minutes and the IRS agents standing in our driveway at 5.30 a.m., which they did. 
Oh, man. You know, you think you've got it bad. You know, you used to complain about your feet hurting until you met a man who had no had no legs. <laughs> you know, it's funny because, like, just before this podcast, Mike and I were um, having a very uh, lively discussion around finances and certain things we should get into. And I, you know, realized after, you know, taking a minute, walking away, clear my head. Jeez, I'm getting so frustrated of being in this one spot that I know we can do better. I can taste it. I want to do better. You know, I can almost taste it. <laughs> you know, and, and so how do you take that battle and turn that into like something like you're talking about? Yeah, you know, you've got to look at, you know, what are the gifts that God has given me? What are the things that I have access to? If it's selling on eBay or Amazon or inspiring other people or writing words that bring people's dreams to life, we just have to look at the things that we're equipped with and then be strategic about using those. So when I had that Sunday school class and people started showing up and I realized the need that was there and people were asking me, wow, I've got a son who's been without work for four months. I want him to hear what you just told us about. What do you have that I can give him? I didn't have anything. So I put together in just a rough form, a three ring binder with my loose Sunday school notes in there, put in two cassettes in there. We had the little cassette wells that you just peel the back off and stick them in there. I've got one right here because I'm working now on the 20th anniversary edition of that book, but I made that available. We started making that available online. I had it for $49, but you know, today's special on the internet is $39. Well, then in 2002, I went to a conference, Mega Book University in Los Angeles with Mark Victor Hansen, co-author of Chicken Soup for the Soul. I grabbed my best friend, Dave Ramsey. I said, hey, let's go. We're trying to figure this out. This guy's sold a lot of books, Chicken Soup for the Soul. Let's go learn from him. So Dave and I went, took our wives, Sharon and Joanne with us. We went and sat there for three days. We came back and we just started doing what he said to do. In the next 30 months, I sold over $2 million worth of that three ring binder at $39 a piece. Dave launched his radio show that's gone on to do pretty well. We just went to Dave's open house of his new campus last Friday night, $60 million campus that he built debt-free. He was in the same shape I was financially back then. We both done pretty well, just encouraging people. Now, that's not a plan for everybody to do what we did. And, and frankly, most people that write books never make any significant money at all. But I realized real early on, most authors aren't doing creative things with their message. They just write a book and then they go sit in a lawn chair by the mailbox waiting on those royalty checks. I never did that. That's never been a source of income for me. It's been in, how can I take that message and in my case, turn it into seminars and workshops that we do, online communities, membership sites. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we've done to leverage that message, and that's worked extremely well. And it's right in that sweet spot where there was an obvious need, and I was absolutely thrilled to be the messenger, to bring people the message as I was learning it myself. 
it's funny when I get into that headspace, you know, the, you know, the kind of headspace where you're just fighting that negative spot and it's not that you, you want to go there, but you end up there. What I find often is I'm, oh, I'm often listening to podcasts to get myself out of it. You know, after dealing with my own emotional, whatever, you, I mean, I know you have a list of books uh, that you recommend. For, I mean, cause everybody hits that spot of, uh, discouragement. You, you earlier alluded to your wife. How how do you get yourself out of that spot when when you inevitably do hit it? Yeah, great question, Teresa. When I hit that really low spot, I mean, the IRS took everything, forced the sale of our house, cars. I had nothing. I borrowed a car from a friend who took mercy on me. It was an old beat up station wagon. The air conditioning didn't work. The power windows didn't work. The radio didn't work. And I used that and I started going door to door in a commission only sales position. I'd get up in the morning and I knew my mind was like a garden. If you let weeds start, they multiply. You've got to force good things to happen in your garden. And I knew my mind was the same way. Again, the radio didn't work. I carried with me a battery-operated cassette player, a little you know, $10 unit, and I played cassettes from what I consider the masters of achievement. Zig Ziglar, Jim Rohn, Dennis Waitley, Napoleon Hill, Earl Nightingale, Norman Vincent Peale, all those old masters of achievement. I played every second I was in the car. So I'd make a sales call, somebody slammed the door in my face, boom, I'm in my car listening to that. I decided I was going to force feed my brain with so much positive material. There was no room for the negative to take root and grow. I committed two hours a day to listening to positive material. And it was so profound in its impact. I've never stopped. So I, now I've always been a reader. Books are my friends. Books more than anything else have opened me up to positive opportunities. And that being said, while somebody else is spending three hours a night, you know, watching old Seinfeld reruns or something else where people are killing and hurting each other, I don't have the TV on. I'm reading a book. I'm getting inspiration and positive input and belief that I can do things that I'm reading about. That's been a major, major piece. When I was a kid, we were very poor, but also legalistic. We did not have radio or TV at our house. They were seen as in evil intrusions. Guess what? It's one of those blessing or curse. I was this poor little kid who didn't have radio or TV. Oh, wow. It drove me to books. Books opened my eyes to how I could be more, have more, do more, go more. It was books that did that. Books have always been where I run to if I'm feeling discouraged. I can pull a book off and I can be so inspired in 30 minutes that I can't keep my feet on the ground. Wow. Um, and I'm also reminded, you know, where the word says to, you know, build yourself up in your faith. It's fascinating having this conversation right out of coming out of a, a gnarly space and, and right out of coming out of that and then coming into this conversation. It's like, okay, you know what? What are you thinking? You can, you can do this. You know, whatever that thing happens to be. So let me ask you this, going on to more uh, uh, brass tacks. So someone's, okay, they're reading, they're getting their mindset stuff squared away. You actually talked about something um, 
that so impacted Mike and I on your podcast. You actually talked about something regarding the upper limit. It so impacted both of us that I actually did a podcast on it myself. Um, can I ask you this question? You you said when you were doing when you were doing your and guys, uh, we will link that particular episode up in the show notes. Um, kind of track it down, but we will link to it. You were saying that someone who is is subject to this upper limit thing uh, will only allow themselves to get like a ten percent raise in pay or something like that. So how do you overcome that? I mean, especially if you're in a space where you're not getting a whole lot of money as it is, how do you overcome that? Recognizing it for what it is, is a big, big piece of the solution. The upper limit challenge simply being we all have kind of a sense of what we deserve. So if we find somebody this kid grows up in a ghetto in Mississippi and abject poverty, but we realize, wow, this guy has a throwing arm like we've never seen. So we bring him to Nashville, sign him with the Tennessee Titans, give him a $10 million bonus. Man, we're on our way. No. Six months later, a kid has spent the money and more, ruined his career beyond repair, and he's back where he came from because his sense of deserving did not match the reality of what he was given so quickly. We see that again and again and again. My wife has a passion for helping these young ladies coming out of the Tennessee prison for women. And we've made that mistake so many times I can't count. Where we bring somebody out who is used to having absolutely nothing, we put get them into a nice house or apartment, give them a car, help them get a job. And you know what? They keep pushing down until they reach that comfort level that matches their sense of deserving. Now, can we get past that? Yeah, we can. I mean, I, I had to deal with that. I mean, that, here's, here's the reality of where I am today. It humbles me to know that on a good day, I make more money than my dad ever made in a year. I had to work through that. And so when Joanne decides that our kitchen needs to be updated, I'm thinking, now, wait a minute, our kitchen is perfectly functional. Why are we going to pay somebody to come in here and use jackhammers and tear things out, destroy cupboards that are perfectly workable and usable, and we're going to spend money to just put in new things because we think it's nicer? I still struggle with decisions like that. That's part of my upper limit challenge. And I'm not saying that we want to get to the point where we're frivolous about that. We want to be good stewards. But there are things that I enjoy today, the kind of cars that I drive and the kind of things that we do, Yeah, that I had to get comfortable with knowing that it was okay to enjoy things like that. But I see people do that in their businesses or their you know, careers all the time. If somebody is used to making $70,000, they lose their job. They're going to be comfortable looking for something between like 60 and 80,000. If they see an opportunity for a position that perfectly describes what they do, but it's $130,000 in income, they're likely not even to pursue it because they're pretty sure it wouldn't really fit. Them. Or they sabotage themselves. I've done that. I've, I've done that. I've had opportunities pot come up to, to uh, at one point I was asked to move to another state and work and help people get their accessibility stuff set. And I guess in my own head, I didn't think I was worthy of it. And so I ended up procrastinating about it until it was too late. And then I couldn't apply. 
We have a young guy in the Eagles community who was a photographer, loved what he was doing. He was working for a newspaper as a photographer. Well, he knew that he was really stuck in terms of income and it was difficult to provide for a family, a growing family. And he says, you know, I guess I've got to change careers. And I said, now, wait a minute. There are people who want to know what you know about photography. He put together a course helping parents take really spectacular pictures of their kids in sports. So think about that emotional connection, how to take a really great picture of your kid, you know, just kicking that winning soccer goal or whatever. He put that course out on a Friday night and in 24 hours, it generated more money than he'd ever made in his, in a year in his regular career. So it was just a subtle adaptation of what he was already doing, but a new application and it opened the door to him to then go on and do some pretty spectacular things, which he continues to do today. But I love those stories. We have to be spiritually and emotionally ready for those opportunities, or we will, in fact, sabotage them. Well, how do you get spiritually ready? How do you get emotionally ready? Again, I think, I think recognizing it and giving it a name, the upper limit challenge. I mean, we see it in simple kind of ways, Teresa, where somebody wants to speak. And so they prepare and they prepare and they get their first opportunity. It's going to pay them $1,500, which would be kind of a beginning speaking fee. They go to the hotel the night before and the next morning they get up, and they have a sore throat. They can't talk. You know what that is? That's probably not a random virus. That's upper limit challenge. That's their emotion and physicality telling them, you aren't really ready for this. What are you thinking about? Nobody in our family has ever done this. A lot of times it's family systems like that. And there may even be criticism from family. You know, who do you think you are? You know, going on doing, I mean, my, my own siblings, I don't tell them about the things that happened to me financially. They'd have a really hard time getting their head around that. We have great conversations you know, about old family experiences and all. And obviously they can kind of see between the lines and seeing things that we do. But um, I don't discuss that. I, I, I don't need to have those conversations. It's so foreign to them that I, I, I share with people who are on the same path. And that's part of it too, is making sure you're spending time with people who are ahead of you in terms of where you want to go, not behind you. If people you hang around are behind you, they're going to be subtle forces for pulling you down and keeping you back. So one of the things I started doing very early on was in as much as I was listening to these great masters of achievement, I sought them out. I went to their conferences. I hung out around the back of the room and waited till I could shake their hand and get a word of inspiration from them. And that was so motivating to me in enlarging my belief system to think, wow, I could do this. But, you know, in, in our culture, I mean, if people have a traditional job, they're likely to get a three or 4% increase. You know, they can handle that. So again, if you're making 70,000 and the next year you're going to make 74,000, yeah, that, that's exciting. But a lot of people get into this space where we are in information, where somebody like that creates a course out of knowledge that they have, or that comes out of the jobs that they've had. And all of a sudden, they 10 times their income. Wow, that's where sometimes people get into trouble. They need to be prepared for that increase in finances or they will, in fact, sabotage it. Yeah, I think we did that in our business too. 
when we when we were doing uh, web development, we ended up undercharging people because we felt like I I I always felt like well. My dad uh, was a, a bookkeeper, but he never charged more than $20 an hour for doing bookkeeping. And I always had that feeling, I want people to be able to afford the service that I'm offering. But, and I had everybody and their brother, including some pretty successful mentors, tell me, no, you need to increase your pricing. And I never could until just recently with, our, with this new podcast service that we're launching. We've gone from 500 bucks to launch a podcast to a thousand to launch a podcast, and you know we're we're putting a lot of value in that. But we never would have done that. And in fact, it was that upper limit episode that caused us to do that. Was we're like, you know, we need to get paid decently for doing this. Well. I commend you on doing that. I'm delighted to hear that. And it's not just about more and more and more. I have a, a real standard coaching package that I've done with you know dentists and pastors and physicians, people that want to get in for years. I haven't changed the price in 20 years. Now, people say, well, why don't you just, you know, people are going to keep coming. You have more people wanting. Why don't you just increase? I don't do that. You know, when, when we recognize the value of a service and we want to serve a particular audience, then it makes sense to be there. Now, if we're too cheap, we're going to attract people that have trouble, you know, even paying for that or difficult to work with, expect more than is reasonable. So we have to define, you know, who is our target audience so that's a reasonable engagement there. You know, I don't want to ever give the impression that, you know, the only measurement of success is more money, but we ought to be able to thrive personally. We ought to be able to bless. We ought to be able to serve from a full cup where it's not just eek and buy, where our needs are met and more, where we have an abundance from which we can give generously to others. What a wonderful position to be in. I have a question, and I think I want to kind of end on this point. There's a lot of people who are looking to start an online ministry and they are kind of, well, I'm trying, I just want to serve and I want to bring people into the kingdom of God or I like, like, like your wife, I just want to minister to the people that are in the prison systems. Um, uh, I've got a friend who specializes in spiritual warfare and that's pretty, you know, but, but the thing that I'm starting to notice with them is, well, you can't really combine business and ministry. Um, like I've seen this time and time and time again, and it even took me a little bit to go, no, I need to create paid opportunities on the, on my ministry site because I didn't want it to look like a money grabbing scheme. And, but I've seen a lot of situations like this. So how do you, walk that line. If you're a ministry, can your ministry and business be the same? Should they be kept separate? What is your thinking in that? That's a really important question and a tough one for people to put legs on. I consider them to be seamless. It's surprising. I mean, I am in totally for-profit business. I mean, we generate a lot of money. That's, there's no, you can do the math, you can look at things and figure out that. Inevitably, I have 20 people a day contact us. Oh, we love your ministry. Thank you for your ministry. They use that term. I never have. 
But people use that term because it feeds their soul. It helps release the very best that God has put in them. But we don't couch it as a nonprofit. We don't ask for donations. We make money in what we do. Now, I think you have to be careful in terms of how you position that. As you just mentioned, I don't know that I could survive and thrive financially if my focus was spiritual warfare. I deal with the challenges that people think they're confronting and how they think others are out to get them or the boss was unfair or whatever. You could frame that as spiritual warfare. I don't do that because when you really give it those kind of spiritual terms, then I think you narrow your audience dramatically and make it more and more difficult. I want to work with somebody out here who doesn't have my same spiritual framework, but needs help. And in helping him, it draws him closer to looking at, gee, what are Dan's beliefs? What are the other things that really give him, you know, what are the things that have led to an amazing 51-year marriage? You know, what are the things that cause the relationships between Dan and his kids as they are? I want those to be attractive, but I don't frame those as these are spiritual things and you have to line up with exactly the way I am there. I, I, think, I think if you really narrow down and say you're in ministry, you've just increased the challenges for making money dramatically. Just do good business. I mean, I just had the privilege of having Dan Cathy on in, in my mastermind. He's CEO of Chick-fil-A. He's worth $7 billion. He just committed for a project in Atlanta, $500 million. This man is a man of integrity from the top of his head to the tip of his toes. It's amazing the principles, the faith principles that guide his life. But he's selling chicken sandwiches. Well, that, and then you have to really, you know, if you watch someone like who's involved in, say, Chick-fil-A or, um, oh, what is the other one? Hobby Lobby. When they start taking a stand for certain issues, that can be can turned into a political hot potato sometimes. You really start to see their faith into action. And then, you know, I mean, and so, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Um, you know, I mean, our friend, the friend in question, I mean, she doesn't just run the spiritual warfare ministry. She's involved in a couple other uh, ventures. And, I, you know, she's been a really good friend, partner to us, that kind of thing. I think the thing that I was kind of driving at and the thing that I've seen is not just her, but in a lot of um, quote unquote ministries, it almost seems like people are afraid to say, well, I'm a for-profit ministry or I'm in business, but I have a focus here. It, it just almost seems like they're afraid to combine those two. Never the, never the two shall meet. Yeah, they almost have a poverty mentality, I've noticed. Wow. There's, there's a real key. People assume that if it is ministry, then you're going to eke out a living and never have anything of real consequence. Yeah. I mean, so the terminology can get us in trouble. You know, I, I'm in a, golly, I guess I'm in ministry, you know, disguised as a business, perhaps. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, and I tell people I'm I'm in a not only for profit business. I mean, we have we are able to give generously. We donate. 
books and resources to the prison systems and to you know welfare to work systems we don't have to worry about the bureaucracy of getting paid a few dollars because we have the resources to give generously in those areas because there are other areas of our business that are extremely profitable we make no apology for that but you know how we make things available we want to make things available for anybody wherever they are if somebody can afford eight dollars we've got audios that we get stories about how it transforms somebody's life. If somebody is ready for a higher level, sure, we have upper level coaching programs and things that were, it's, it's a different level of commitment. But one of the things that impresses me, Dan, is with Eagles, you know, we've been members of Eagles for about a year now. And I mean, you could char- you could easily charge two or three times what, what you're charging for the Eagles with all the value that's being offered there and being able to make the connections that you can make. Well, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. And we have members tell us that, but now let, let's look at this because we're growing that right now. We're at about 600 members and I've made it very open that I want it to be a community of 2,500 They're not millions, but 2,500, but 2,500 at $36 a month. That's a million dollars a year. I have really no. Why didn't you do? Why didn't you do forty-eight? Because was going on your mind. Well, we will get there. If if you recall, we started at twenty-four, and we raised it then to thirty, then to thirty-six. The next one will be forty-two, and then it'll be forty-eight. It's just being sequenced out. But at thirty-six, twenty-five hundred—that's a million dollars a year. Now, I don't feel the urgency to squeeze people to make it three times that. I mean, that's a pretty significant you know, source of income for Joanne and me, along with other things that we're doing. And I, I like having things that are easy for people to participate in, where they feel like the value they're getting is 10 times what it's actually costing them. So I very purposely keep things at a level where I know I could raise it. You know, we've built a brand and reputation. I'm grateful for that. I know we could increase it. But I often don't do that just because I want to continue serving people well where they know they're getting great value for what they're investing. Amen. Well, Dan, I mean, we could honestly go on and on. And I I am privileged and honored to uh, have you on the show uh, talking about this stuff because, man, sometimes we all just need that shot in the arm, you know? Thank you. Well, I'm delighted. I'm delighted to be your guest. Honored to have you guys involved in our community. Appreciate your continued participation and input. But I love these conversations and hope that we can encourage and inspire your listeners. That's kind of my goal. That's that's my heart. That's my goal. That's why I do what I do. And I, I do my best to bring on guests that I think will add a lot of value. And it's if we can just encourage one person to step out of that comfort zone and go, you know what? I think God's called me to do this. And I think I'm going to try and do that. So Dan, if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you? 48days.com. Simple to find, simple to get involved. We have a lot of resources there, ways to connect. My podcast, other resources we've got, anything we've got in communities, online events are there, 48days.com. Beautiful. Well, Dan, thank you so much uh, for coming on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Well, guys, 
this has been a podcast that I have been looking forward to doing for a long time, and now you understand why. Thank you, uh, guys, for listening. Please share this if you found it valuable. When it comes down to it, just step out and do your thing. Just do it. You know, if two blind people living on Social Security can get off their tails and develop a business, you can too. Yeah, totally. Totally. So with that, I'm Teresa Blaze. You've been listening to the Teresa Blaze Show. Let's go do this thing. You've been listening to The Teresa Blaze Show. To catch all her past shows, visit www.teresablaze.com. That's T-E-R-E-S-A-B-L-A-E-S.com. 